and start into it. So this, these comments I'm going to make right now are, are really to all, uh, about all seven of the letters that we'll be reading over the next seven weeks. And, and they're pen, letters penned by Jesus to churches uh, that are in Asia Minor. So Jesus is sending these letters as part of one revelation. It's part of really one revelation. So when you hear that, it's not revelations, the book, it's revelation. It's one revelation that Jesus is giving to the Apostle John to send out to the churches. And the seven letters are part of that. And, and part of what's being communicated through these letters and through the revelation as a whole is that God is in the midst of our struggles. He's in the midst of the brokenness of life. He's in the midst of the chaos that we experience. And he's there with us in the midst of it, and yet he is also Lord over it. Lord over all the culture, Lord over all of history, Lord over all the powers that we can imagine that seem to threaten us or come against us. And so throughout this whole telling of the book of Revelation, there is this constant theme of God saying, I'm here with you in the midst. You're not alone. I've got you. And this chaos and these powers will not take you away from me. The seven letters are being sent to churches in Asia Minor, which is, is a weird phrase. We don't usually use that phrase anymore today. It's really Western Turkey. And, and there's, there's a traveling route that, that preachers and, and trade routes would have followed. And these seven churches kind of loop around that, starting on the west coast at Ephesus and, and looping all the way around. So the seven churches, there's kind of a journey from church to church that's happening. And the letters are being given so you can imagine that someone is actually going to take this revelation and bring it to each of these churches one at a time as they go through. Each letter emphasizes something of who Jesus is. So you'll hear that at the start. So today's talks about Jesus being the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the lampstands, the seven lampstands. And what we're starting to hear is something of who Jesus is. And what, what Jesus is saying about who he is has to do with the character and the circumstances of the church he's talking to. So, so that idea of who Jesus is has everything to do with what the people are experiencing and how they've been responding to those circumstances. You also notice as we go through that each of the letters ends with a common phrase. It ends with this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an interesting transition and I want us to pay attention to that because that's why this phrase is why the letter to Ephesus, for example, that we'll read today has to do with us as well. The beginning of each letter starts off with one church. So today, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. But it ends by saying, let those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all of the churches. So these letters, even though they're designed for a specific circumstance in one church, Jesus is saying, I want all of you to listen in. I want all of you to hear what's going on because it may not be your situation right now, but it is going to be something that is, applies to your life and to discipleship of the body of Christ 
And you may well find yourself in this place one day. Listen up. Pay attention. Now, our temptation is to think, oh, good, more information. And we want to write down notes, and it's okay if you take notes or sketch pictures as we go along. That's good. But we want more information. And what's really happening in Revelation is what Eugene Peterson's talking about here. It's not more information. It's actually inviting us to imagine God's faithfulness present with us today. So let me read this a moment. I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Jesus Christ. I have read it all before in law and prophet and gospel and epistle. Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the Gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. One of the invitations that comes in reading Revelation is to imagine yourself again as a little child who's seeing wonderful things that go beyond our logical affirmation and, and reasoning. They stretch us to think not primarily or to engage not primarily with our minds, but with our hearts and our imagination. And so as we go through over the next seven weeks, you'll hear me raise questions. Can you imagine? Or can you believe? Or what's happening in our hearts? Because that's where this book of Revelation speaks. Not primarily to our heads. Not primarily about doctrine. But about relationship with God and where we are at with God in our present circumstances. With that as the context, Nella, could you come and read the word for us today? Before we read, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the freedom to meet together in your house once again. Focus our minds and our hearts on you and what you require of us. Be the center of our worship today. Bless Pastor Chris as he shares word and sacrament with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Revelations chapter 2, the verses 1 through 7, found on page 1914 in your pew Bibles. To the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, 
which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Whoa. Something got stuck here. (laughs) All right, there we go. If you can speed read, you may have caught the whole sermon. (laughs) How big is your Jesus? I mean, seriously, how big is your Jesus? Is he big enough to hold you? Is he big enough to hold your family, your friends? Is he bigger than that? This is really one of two questions that's being prompted in the opening of this letter. Jesus begins his letter to the church in Ephesus essentially saying, how big do you think I am? Do you see me as big enough to hold the stars in my hand? Now the part we didn't read in the end of chapter 1 explains that the seven stars that Jesus is holding represent the seven angels of the churches. Jesus is saying, I hold all the angels of the churches in my hand. They're mine. They're not outside of my control. They're not threatened. They're under my protection. I've got them. One little imaginary phrase, Jesus is reminding them, pay attention. I am the one, the one speaking to you, I am the one who holds the stars in my hand. How big is your Jesus? Can you imagine that Jesus is so big that he holds the angels of all seven churches in his hand? That's the question he's prompting in front of them. And then he continues the phrase and he asks essentially another question. How close is your Jesus? Is your God somewhere off in a distance watching over us? Or is he near us? Is your God out there somewhere having nothing to do with your day-to-day living, your business, your marriage, your relationship with neighbors, your shopping, your classmates? Or is your God close to you? And Jesus says to the churches, can you imagine that I'm walking among you? Jesus is saying to them, I walk among the golden lampstands. In the golden lampstands, we learn at the end of chapter 1, represent each of the churches. And Jesus is saying, I'm right there with you. I'm right there in the midst of what you're going through. It's not foreign to me. It's not something I've overlooked. Your circumstances are known to me. I see you. Do you see me? Jesus is calling out to the church in Ephesus. Do you know how big I am? Do you see how close to you I am? You're not alone. 
It was tempting for the church in Ephesus to think that they were alone. It, it really was a gateway city to all of Asia Minor and the trade routes that went east from Rome. And they often would flow through Ephesus and they'd enter that area. And so there was, there was constant military traveling through there. There was constant economic travel. It was a crossroads type city. There was all sorts of different cultures there. And the people in Ephesus would have could have felt very threatened by that. How are we going to survive among all these ideas of the world that are present among us and around us? You begin to feel very small in those big cities, and, and they did. More than that, Ephesus was known for its temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there, the temple to Artemis, or Diana, depending if you were following the Greek god or Roman god. <laughs> but the temple there was one of the grand, grand architectural designs, but also cultural centers and religious centers. If we re remember in the book of Acts, when Paul came there, there was such an uproar in the city of Ephesus because people were converting that the, the idol makers of the city started a whole revolt and brought some of the Christian leaders out into the middle of, of the, uh, the gathering place in town and, and they wanted them condemned because they were, they were convinced that this foreign god was disrupting their business of making idols to Artemis. And they chanted, Artemis is great, Artemis is great, Artemis of Ephesus. To be a Christian in a place with such a predominant idolatry and foreign religion. It was present there. But it wasn't only Artemis. There are at least three other significant religious temples in the city of Ephesus. Other gods that were being worshipped alongside Artemis. And, and so this whole environment is a very spiritual environment, very religious environment that it keeps pointing people away from God, away from God, away from God. As a Christian, begin to feel small and overwhelmed. How do we protect ourselves? How do we defend ourselves? How, how do we make sure that we don't lose our faith and our kids don't lose, our, lose the faith? On top of that, you feel it kind of stacking up? <laughs> the city of Ephesus becomes one of the leading, if not the leading city in Asia Minor for emperor worship. Over time, the Roman emperors started to portray themselves as gods and think of themselves of, as gods and eventually began mandating that there would be worship offered to them. And so religious centers were set up where people had to go through certain religious exercises to demonstrate their loyalty to Rome by worshiping the emperor and offering prayers and sacrifices to him. And here in the city of Ephesus, we have a people who are trying to be Christian, trying to follow God, trying to remain faithful, and they see the threats all around them. The response here that gets relayed in the first part is, we need to defend the church. 
We need to defend the church against potential heresies, things that come in from these other religions. Syncretism, which is a, a, a churchy word of saying we mix Christ, a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of emperor worship or a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of worship with Artemis. We, we kind of blend them all together. And so it becomes something new. And the church in Ephesus said, no. We need to make sure that we're defending ourselves uh, against all these foreign threats. Make sure that our doctrine is pure, that we've got things right, that we have teachers who teach rightly. Pure doctrine. That they don't mix with other religions. In fact, it, Jesus commends them in this passage for naming the false apostles and resisting the temptation of following false apostles. He says, you're actually doing a good job. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus is saying to them, you're right to defend the faith. You're right to pay attention to theology. You're right to pay attention to doctrine. You're right to pay attention to how people are teaching among you. That needs to happen. And you've done an amazing job in the midst of an oppressive culture that is tempting people to flee from me. Well done. Keep up that good work. And amazingly, even with all this outside pressure coming against you that could lead you to abandon the faith, you have not grown weary. You might say, you are zealous for the faith. You are zealous to make sure that the faith is taught rightly. And Jesus says this, Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now there's, there's a thought here, kind of more of a contemporary thought among commentators and, and church leaders, that the first love is referring to a relationship with God. But that's not the case. If we just went back through all the things that Jesus affirmed for this church in Ephesus and said you're doing right, they have that relationship with God. They understand that relationship with God. They are zealous for that relationship with God. They love God and they want to make sure that their love for God is pure and right and not affected by anything coming in from the outside. But in their zeal, in their zeal for defending their faith, they have lost their love for their neighbor. They have lost their capacity to love others. Have you ever been in an environment, maybe you have, in an environment where everybody's concerned about following the rules exactly to the point? It starts to feel oppressive after a while. It actually begins to breed a context of distrust. It breeds a setting where, where you start becoming suspicious of others that they're suspicious of you and somehow watching you. You get this big brother feel hanging over you. Someone's, someone sees me. Someone's always watching me. And it creates an environment where it's difficult then to trust others. It's difficult to reach out and, and invest in others. It's difficult to, to come alongside somebody and even say, how are you doing, Jack? doing all right today 
it becomes difficult to even have that type of relationship because you're worried that if someone sees you talking to Jack, they're going to go, he talked to Jack, how come he didn't talk to me? Right? It creates a context where motives are always being questioned. And so Jesus is saying, you've got the doctrine right, keep the doctrine right, but don't lose sight of what you've been really called to in the midst of that. And what all that doctrine is for is to be able to love each other well. Francis Schaeffer made this comment. He's a, a theologian. said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. It's a provocative statement, admittedly so. But it drives at what's at the heart of this text. If you say you have everything right with God, if you cry out like the people at, at Jeremiah's time did, the temple, the temple, the temple, it's ours. We're safe to do whatever we want. And you live in a way that judges others, that dismisses others, that pushes other people away, that excludes people from being able to come before God, then you've missed the whole point of worship. You've missed the whole point of the theology, of the doctrine, of the right belief. Right belief separated from right action and right heart or disposition towards others leads us into a place where we no longer are in tune with God and what God is doing, but we've become separated from Him. Essentially, Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus and to us, where's your love? Where's your love? You've got the right thinking. Where's your heart? Is our Jesus only big enough for people who think like us, believe like us, look like us, act like us? It's a serious question. Is our Jesus only big enough for people who think like us, believe like us, look like us, act like us? Will our Jesus only come close to us when we keep those who are different away from us? This is part of what Jesus is saying and asking the church in Ephesus. You're so worried about the world outside affecting you and drawing you away from God that you have blocked off the world. In fact, you've created an environment where you don't experience my love among each other anymore. Do you see me as big enough for the whole world? or only for yourself. John Swinton is a Scottish theologian, works on theology of disability. I'm just beginning to, to learn a little bit more about him and some of his writing, but I have found his conversations fascinating. He talks about the church as being a place where we are to not just focus on including others, but creating a space where people can belong. And he makes a difference between inclusion and belonging. Inclusion, he says, is when we say, people are welcome to come in and join us. Belonging is where we say, if someone isn't here, we go out looking for them to bring them in. 
To belong, you have to be missed. There's something really, really important about that. People need to long for you, to want you to be there. When you're not there, they should go looking for you. How would that change the nature of church? How would that change the nature of church if we showed up on Sunday morning and and not taking attendance, but we looked around and said, I noticed so-and-so wasn't here today, and we gave him a call or shot him a quick email or a text. What would that look like? What would that change the character of the church to say, I missed you this morning? You weren't here, so we didn't experience the fullness of Christ's body because you weren't in worship with us. How would that feel for somebody else to say, I missed you so much, I'm actually taking the time to reach out and see if you're okay? reason I ask that question and the reason I put John Swinton's stuff in front of us is because I'm convinced that's what Jesus did. Do you remember the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one? What do we say? What is there only comfort in life and in death? That I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what's remarkable about this? Love keeps asking, who's still missing until everyone has come home? And that's exactly what Jesus did. In a few moments, we're going to have the bread and the cup, and and we're going to taste Jesus saying, you belong to me, and because you belong to me, when you were separated from me, when you were far away from God, I went looking for you. Jesus was the older brother who left the father's house to chase after us younger children to bring us back home. Jesus said, you are far off. You are outside of God's will and God's ways. In fact, you are enemies to God, as Paul says. And while you are enemies, Christ reconciled us to God the Father through his death. Jesus said, there's people still missing from your house, Father. Let me go find them and bring them home. And for each of us, that is the story, that that we were separated from God and God in his gracious love sent his son Jesus Christ to come after us and find us and bring us home because we belong to him. We belong to God the Father and God invites us into that and he's inviting the church of Ephesus into that type of love. It says, who's still missing? Who's not here? Who needs to come home and be at home with God the Father? Are we willing to go and seek them and bring them in even as Christ sought us and brought us home? Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, our faith is no longer just a a theoretical or abstract ideas we have about God, but Jesus is saying, imagine your faith as something you live not simply something you believe. Put it into practice. Practice this love. Look for ways that you can go out and love others like you did at first when you first heard the good news. What was that practice like? This is what Jesus said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. By this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have your doctrine correct. No. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples 
if you love one another. We need good doctrine. We need correct doctrine. We need to continue growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we cannot do so at the expense of loving one another. The mark of following Jesus Christ, of being Christ's people, of being God's people in this world is that we love one another. And Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus and to us, get your love right. Love one another. To answer that question, how big is Jesus? Jesus is so big that we can love others no matter how different they are from us. He's so big that we can actually love people who are different than us, something the world doesn't teach us. Jesus is so close to us that when we love others, Jesus promises to make himself known through us. Isn't that amazing? He takes our feeble offerings, our imperfect ways of loving each other and fumbling through relationships with each other and says, as you love one another, I'll show up. I'll make myself known so that others will see me. It's that passage we read from 1 John after our confession of sin and the assurance of pardon that God makes his love known through us. And no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, his love is made complete in us. Jesus gives this closing promise then. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Saying to the church in Ephesus and to us, I will make everything right. I will restore those relationships that were shattered in the garden. I will lift that curse that has resulted in division after division after division that has created enmity between men and women, between cultures, between ages, between all sorts of people, and even between creation and humanity, and between God and humanity. I will make all things new so that you can be there and eat of that tree of life, which is a promise that we will live forever with God. What we will taste in a moment is both an echo and an anticipation of that promise. It's that promise being made to us again that because of what God is doing in Jesus Christ and because of the life, he invites us to live with him and to enter in with him. Jesus is big enough that we'll be able to live with him forever. We will have the right to eat in the garden with God and with all those who are reconciled to him. Let's pray. Lord, your word is both affirming and challenging. You affirm us when we pay attention to the truth of who you are. When we dig deep into, our, into scripture and, and into theology and we try to understand more of who you are and what you have done and how you have done it. And it is good and right to discern between you 
and all the false gods and false teachers around us. And you also, Lord, speak a hard word to us. A hard word that confronts us in our relationships with one another and the brokenness that we maintain in them. The way we stiff-arm others and keep them away from us and away from you. The way we fail to seek others and draw them in so that they know they belong to you. But you give us this grace. You give us this grace in that you have loved us, that you have sought us even in our brokenness, that you have drawn us to, our, to yourself even when we were your enemies, even when we felt like we did not belong to you anymore because of what we have done. You drew us to yourself and you promise us that we will live forever with you. We thank you for that promise. We thank you for the gift of new life in Jesus Christ that we are about to remember and believe. As we do, may you make us whole and holy that we might love others even as you have loved us. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.